Well, good evening. Find a seat and try to maintain it. We're going to be here for three more hours. Going from Genesis to Revelation really quickly. Now, tonight is like a special evening. Um, it's like Israel night, because in just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to a friend who I met recently in Israel. I've been to Israel now, I think, 28 times, and um, this last trip was special in a number of ways. Number one, it was really large. We took 600 people, 12 buses. That was like a marathon. I didn't think we could pull it off, but we did. And uh, I met a great guy, and I'm going to introduce you to him. He came all the way from Jerusalem, or as he likes to call it, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, is that right, Steve? Yeah. He always does that, and you'll find out why in a minute, I think. But uh, before we do, I'm going to just share a few moments with you out of the Word, and then I'm going to bring Steve up. We're going to interview him and give you a chance to ask questions. After all, a lot's going on in Israel this week, and we want to find out about it from somebody who lives there. And uh, just in case I forget, at the end of the service, in the foyer, we have purchased uh, Turkish coffee. So you'll get the feel of what it's like, the taste of what it's like to go to the Middle East and have Turkish coffee and halva, which is uh, sesame seed and honey mixed together. It's a sweet treat, so uh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and uh, you'll taste and see that Israel is sweet. So we hope you'll enjoy it as you leave tonight. Um, I'm going to share a couple scriptures beginning in Genesis 12, uh, just sort of to theologically frame the evening tonight before I introduce Steve. Oh, by the way, we are being joined live on the Internet from people all around the country, so just why don't you welcome them? It's always nice when you do that. The prophet Ezekiel. He said, Skip, turn to Genesis 12. That has nothing to do with Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel was taken in a vision by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley where he saw dry bones. This is in Ezekiel 37. And so he sees these bones, they're exceedingly dry, obviously no life, just skeletal structures, the remains of people's bones, very dry. And God has him look at the bones and then ask the question, can these bones live? And I like the way Ezekiel answered it. He said, Lord, you know. Only God, you know. So then he said, Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and they shall live. And sure enough, breath entered them after sinews, flesh, muscle came upon the bones and it grew to an exceedingly great army. And that was a vision that God gave to Ezekiel that the nation of Israel would live and prosper in their land once again. In May 14, 1948, Israel came back into the very land that God promised them that they would inhabit. God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants And we just want to talk briefly about that. These are the days when people talk about rights. My rights, your rights, civil rights, women's rights, men's rights, children's rights. 
But the fundamental question is, whose right is it to tell us what rights we have? Depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers. In a civilized world, we would say it's the uh, right of private citizens and or civilized nations to determine rights and the boundaries of those. Well, actually, we appeal to a higher power. God, as the Creator, reserves the right to tell us whose rights are whose and what right we have of ownership, of authority, etc. So that takes us to the issue of whose land Israel, or some call it Palestine, I don't, and I'll tell you why. Whose land is it? Here's the answer, and I want to give you a few facts. Fact number one, the land belongs to God. In Leviticus 25, God said, For the land is mine, it shall not be sold permanently. You are strangers and sojourners in it. We call that the holy land today. And if you ever go to Israel, you may wonder, why do they call this place holy? I don't get it. In fact, a lot of places it seems very unholy. It's holy for the reason that it's God's land. It is His. He reserves that right. Fact number two. God gave it to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham was called from Iraq, Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, and was told to come to a land that God would show him. God showed it to him. And God said, get out of your country. This is chapter 12, verse 1. From your kindred, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Fact number three. Not only is it God's land, number one. Not only did he give it to Abraham and his descendants, number two. Fact number three, it's an unconditional covenant. You know what that means? No strings attached. It's not based upon their obedience or their disobedience, whether they occupy that land or not. Down in um, chapter 17, skip ahead a few chapters. Chapter 17, speaking to Abram again, now he's 99 years young. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for what kind of a covenant? An everlasting covenant. Last time I checked, everlasting is a long time, like forever. To be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
Now, some will say, well, yes and no, their occupying the land is conditioned upon their obedience to God so that if they're disobedient to God, they're out of the land. Wrong again. There's two types of covenants, really briefly, conditional and unconditional. The law of Moses was a conditional covenant. The law of Abraham, an unconditional covenant. God said in the law of Moses, if you disobey me, I'll kick you out of the land. But God had said to Abraham, it's for you and your descendants forever. You say, I don't get it. How does it work? Easy. Their tenure in the land is conditional. The occupying of that land as a possession is unconditional. This is what it means. When they blow it, God will warn them. If they keep blowing it, God will kick them out of the land to teach them a lesson. And while they're learning their lesson, they'll eventually cry out to God and say, we're sorry. And then God will bring them back into the land. And that happened over and over again throughout the book of Judges, the sin cycle. They were oppressed. They cried out to God. They occupied. Eventually, they were taken captive for 70 years, but they were eventually brought back. Um, I'm going to read this to you in Psalm Uh, you can turn to it if you like. It is in Psalm 89, a few verses that are very important to this. Psalm 89, I'm reading the beginning in verse 30. God is speaking to David, who he gives another covenant to. If his, that is David's sons, forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, like the faithful witness in the sky. God promised it as an everlasting covenant to Abraham and his descendants, as an unconditional covenant. Fact number four, it was to one part of Abraham's descendants and not another part. Abraham had two sons. The firstborn who would naturally get the right of possession was Ishmael. The secondborn was Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was not. It was Abraham who suggested to God, look, fulfill your promise through Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. In chapter 17, he says, God says, no. And he says, I will bless Ishmael. And I will give him a portion of land for him and his descendants, and my blessing will be upon them. But this little land that I have carved out for Abraham will go to Isaac and his descendants. Fact number five. It not only went to Abraham and Isaac, not Ishmael, but it went to another descendant of Abraham, Jacob, and not Esau. You see, Isaac had two sons. They were twins. Esau was born first. He came out all hairy and red. And so they called him Harry Red. Esau. And he was the natural firstborn to take the land as promised. 
But he sold his birthright, did he not? To his brother. Okay, his brother tricked his dad and took the birthright, dressed up, but he got the blessing from his father to occupy the land, as predicted by God. Now, some people have trouble with that, and they say, well, yes, his dad blessed him and said, you're going to occupy this land, you and your descendants, but it's because his dad was old and blind and didn't know that his son was tricking him, so it really wasn't fair. Well, keep reading. Because when he runs away from home and he's out there in the desert, he gets a dream at night and he sees angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder. And God says to Jacob, The land upon which you lie will be for you and your descendants the blessing of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. Later on, he gets his name changed to Israel after he decides to wrestle God all night. Can you imagine having a wrestling match with God? He gets his name changed to Israel and the promise again that to you, the promise of Abraham and Isaac and now you, Israel, is to occupy the land. And this is repeated so much so that once they go into captivity in Egypt for 400 years, and they're about ready to go into the land. On the other side of the Jordan River, Moses gets the same commandment. Go and take the land that I have promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. If you've ever studied the history of Israel, and you still don't believe in miracles, you are not a realist. If you can study the history of Israel and say, I don't think there's a God, and I don't think there's miracles, you've got some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo would say to his wife. Lucy, you've got some splaining to do. What other nation has been out of their land for 400 years after it just budded as a nation? Only to be brought back into that land, and then deported and two dispersions, and total destructions, and a holocaust, and now they're back in the land today, speaking the Hebrew language, as the Bible predicted, since 1948. It's a miracle. And we support Israel's right to exist in the land because of the covenant that God made. We love Jews, we love Arabs, we love Palestinians, we love Egyptians, we love all of them for Christ's sake. We want them all one to Him. But God promised, and part of the last day scenario is that land of Israel. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to the one we affectionately know as Steve the Tour Guide. Steve, come on up. Steve, we know you as Steve the tour guide, but what's your last name? Well, I have a couple. I was born here in the United States with uh, one last name pronounced Joss. And when I moved to Israel, nobody was able to pronounce this name properly because, as you know, there's no Joss sound in Hebrew. So I was called all sorts of names bordering profanity. <laughs> and then I decided it was time to change my name while I'm in Israel itself. 
So I took on the name of Jesse, which I thought was the most similar to my original name, and I took the name Ben Yishai, son of Jesse, because I like King David. That's great. Well, we welcome you here to Southern California. We're glad you're with us. And I didn't know I was coming to the Dr. Phil uh, show. I mean, the couch and the... Hey, just be glad Oprah isn't coming out here. <laughs> okay. Listen, you're not Israeli by birth. No. You're, you were born in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So we kind of want to know a little bit about your story, because... It's sort of an enigma, I would think. How does a good Jewish boy from Philadelphia, you were raised Jewish, mm-hmm. um, first of all, come to know Yeshua, come to know Christ? How did that happen? Well, it's an amazing story. Is You say I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And part and parcel of our education as Jewish kids, you would think that when we go to the synagogue or Hebrew school, we're taught the Bible. But in actuality, we're really taught modern-day Jewish history, and in particular, the bad blood between ourselves and Christianity, the, the history of the church and the Jews, which is not a bright uh, history. It's got a history with a lot of uh, bad uh, episodes in it. And therefore, as kids, many of us grow up believing that Christianity is really the enemy. Now, it's not like we think every single Gentile we meet in the streets wants to kill us, but we are taught that in every Gentile Christian's education is that belief that was passed to him that the Jew is the devil in disguise, uh, that the Jew is the incarnate Satan. And therefore, my whole life, I really believe that Christianity hates the Jews. Yet at the same time, as a kid, I remember being very open and drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. I had seen enough movies about him, even Hollywood films, to know that he was a Jew, that uh, he was called rabbi. And I couldn't reconcile this Jewish Jesus with Christian history as it relates to the Jews. Uh, For instance, the church taught something called replacement theology, which teaches that Israel is, uh, God is through with Israel, and that the church has replaced Israel, and that we're to go on in suffering for eternity is a witness of our failure to receive Jesus. So I, I couldn't reconcile the Jewish Jesus with his church, but I never hated Jesus. And I'll never forget, when I was a kid about 10 or 11 years old, there was a comedian that maybe some of you remember, a guy by the name of Sam Kinison, who was the son of a Methodist preacher. And this Sam Kinison had a trademark scream that he would do. This was his... Usually, ah, I can't even imitate. It's just uh, Sam Kinison. Try that again, though. Do it like he would do it, Steve. What would he? What would he? It was do? just this, ah, like that. It was just. Uh, That's better. That's feeling. I like that. You said we're on the internet <laughs> nationwide. <laughs> God help me. Uh, okay, where's the TV camera, by the way? Well, there's one there. Uh huh. There's one there. One right here on the balcony. Okay. Yes, there's three of them. Well, anyway, Sam Kinison was the son of a Methodist preacher who evidently wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ or the legacy of his family. And I was over a friend of mine's house in Philadelphia. He too was Jewish. And we were watching HBO and Sam Kinison was performing from Las Vegas. And he was imitating the crucifixion in a very disrespectful way where he would imitate the driving of the nails into the uh, wrist of Jesus and do his trademark scream. And people were laughing hysterically, and I, I became just filled with fear. I couldn't believe I was watching this in Christian America. I knew enough about America's uh, Christian heritage, its spiritual heritage, and I couldn't believe I'm watching this comedian, and thousands of people are laughing at him, uh, mocking something that's uh, reverent to many people. 
So I said to my host, I said, turn off the TV. I'm afraid we're going to get struck by lightning for just watching this. And they said, well, Steve, you remember you're a Jew. This isn't our religion. What do you care? He's not, we're not Christians. And I said, but how do you know? Birth is by the lottery. They were born Christian. We're born Jews. But maybe the truth is with them. So from the very beginning, I was always open to the belief that we have to search for truth, that it's not something that you're not born into the truth. One of the singers up here was saying that you're not saved by denomination or church affiliation or ethnic affiliation, but we have to go out of our comfort zone to search the truth, and sometimes that's outside of our, our, our boundaries that we were born into. So I was very open uh, to Jesus. There's nothing inside me that hated him, and I remember I went to college eventually. I got accepted to Penn State University, and on the first day of university, some uh, my mother and dad, being good parents, they uh, brought one of these U-Hauls with all my uh, clothes and possessions. And my mom, while she was helping me to move into the dorm room, uh, as she was helping me to do this, an older classman called the RA, uh, the disciplinarian of the floor, he walks in. And I think my mother was wearing a Star David, so he says to us, are you people Jews? And my first reaction was defensive, and I said, well, what do you want from me? And he says, I just want to thank you for what you gave to me. Well, I said, I don't even know you. <laughs> what did I give to you? I thought this was a real weird guy. And he says, well, I just want to thank you for giving me the Bible and the prophets and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And at that point, my mother dropped my clothes, <laughs> yelled out to my dad, Sheldon, get in that you are out of here. And, uh, and there I was left alone for the next four years of college life. But... In his saying that, uh, what he said to me, all this psychological baggage that had collected for years through my education in Hebrew school and synagogue concerning Christianity just demolished within that split second. I can no longer say all Christians hate the Jews because this one certainly not only does not hate the Jews, he's what you call a philo-Semite. He loves the Jews. So I was drawn to him. And he was drawn to me because I think I was the first Jew he ever met. And he was actually looking for horns on my head. He, he was told that we have horns. Well, I said, just push the nose and they pop out like stilettos. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he thought because I'm a Jew, I must be an expert on the law. You know, that I must be a, like a Nicodemus. So I said to him, Jamie, because that was his name, I said, I, I may surprise you when I tell you this, but 99.9% .9 of us called Jews have never seen a Bible in our life. To us, it's just a, an ethnic designation, like uh, Irish-American, Italian-American, Jewish-American. So he said to me, well, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And I said, well, I believe that I was born in a religion that accepts him, and I was taught, therefore, I, I was born into a religion that says not to accept him, uh, and therefore that's what I was taught to do. You were born into a religion that tells you to accept him, and that's just the luck of the draw. And he said, well, what would it take for you to, to uh, come to the faith? And I said, well, Jamie, I see you really know the Bible. I'm, af I'm afraid to debate you because you'll win. But if God himself shows me, then I'll have to accept. I said, I won't let any human being trick me into converting to anything. I said, if God himself shows me, then I'll have no choice but to accept. And I said, if it's true that he sent this Jesus to die for me on the cross, I'll pay the price, whatever it is. So he said, from your mouth to God's ears. Mm. And then he gave me a Bible. And a Bible, as you know, is a very thick book. And I have to confess that until then, I had never read a book from cover to cover. In high school, I bought these cliff notes uh, <laughs> for, 
for all of my reading assignments. So I said, Lord, I'm lost. What in the world do I do? There's this thick book called the Bible filled with thousands of verses about all sorts of things. Where do I begin? And as I prayed that prayer, I just opened the book without looking for any spot and it opened to Isaiah 53. And I read Isaiah 53 <laughs> and it's, it was so clear who was talking about that I got angry at myself because I had pledged I would not read the New Testament. That, I, that If Jesus is the Christ, he has to be shown to me in the Jewish book, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So I looked at this and I was shocked to find out that this is the Old Testament, this is the Hebrew Bible. So I'm breaking out in a cold sweat <laughs> and I shut the Bible and go to take a break, I'd probably get a drink, and I come back and I want to find this Isaiah 53 again. Because I'm just in shock. So I go to Isaiah and instead of finding Isaiah 53, the chapter I come across next is the one that mentions the many names of the Messiah. You may remember Counselor. But one of them in Hebrew is El Gibor, which means Almighty God. Now here this human being that's being predicted to one day be born to the world is being called Almighty God. Well, you see, Jewish theology is taught by the rabbis, teaches that the Messiah will not be divine, but he's just like one of us. He's a sinful man who's born in sinful flesh like us, but through his incredible gift of intellect and charisma, he teaches the world through almost a new agey uh, uh, charm to just beat our swords into plowshares. But here I'm reading in the source of the Jewish religion, or what should be the source of the Jewish religion, that this Messiah is God himself in the flesh. So when I read that, that totally discredited within a minute all this theology I've been taught as a kid, and I lost all my faith in rabbis. And I said, forget the rabbis, I'm going to go directly to the source of life, I'm going to the Bible. Because there's obviously a contradiction between these rabbis and what they teach, and what I just read is clear as day in the Bible. Almighty God. So I spent the next couple of weeks searching the scriptures, uh, reading the book More Than a Carpenter, and it was interesting because during those two weeks, dozens and dozens and dozens of people had witnessed to me in every imaginable spot, including the restroom. I'd, I'd go to the restroom and suddenly someone starts to witness to me and I said, can't you wait? <laughs> so, so people are crawling out of the woodwork of every uh, possible place to witness to me. And it all culminates one night when I go to dinner by myself. Usually I would go to uh, dinner with an entourage of friends from the dorm. And I go to dinner by myself and I sit at a table for about six or eight people and suddenly these five Campus Crusade people sit down with me. And they said, would you mind, uh, if, could we speak to you about the Lord Jesus Christ? I said, well, go ahead, everybody else has. <laughs> By now, I think all the United States is born again Christian. So they sit down and they say to me, Steve, what do you think about Jesus Christ? And I said, it's just amazing that you asked that. I said, for the last two weeks, I've been uh, consulting the Bible, reading this Josh uh, McDowell book. And I said, in my intellect, I really believe that we the Jews have missed the boat. And what I mean by that is I really believe his claim that this guy is the Messiah. So he said, well, what are you going to do about this? And I said, well, now I'm in a predicament. I said, I think I may convert to Catholicism since that's the biggest Christian church. Well, these guys almost collapsed. <laughs> 
And they said then to me something that was so enlightening for that day. And to be honest with you, enlightening for this day to hear from uh, uh, many Christians. He said to me, Steve, you don't need to convert to any religion. This is your own God of Israel calling you to worship him in truth through your own Messiah of Israel. What could be more Jewish than that? And when he looked at, when he said that, it's just all the scales, you know, that Paul talks about or the Bible speaks about the scales in our eyes just totally uh, fell off. And I said, well, how do I receive him? And he said, just take this four spiritual law book, read through it on your own time. And if you believe in what you read, pray this prayer. So shortly after, I took the uh, this tract to my room and I read it and I prayed it and I got saved that night. Wow, what a story. That's a great one. That's a great testimony. That's great. Did did you make any of that up? Okay, I know. I'm just kidding. I wanted to throw you there. Um, we're just having fun. The next question would be, not only how does a nice Jewish boy come to Yeshua, but what made you go to Israel? You're living in the United States. What interests you to not only go visit, but to live there as a citizen and immigrate? Well, that's an amazing story, and, and in my opinion, a, a much better story than this uh, testimony that we just uh, had. And that's this, that when I was a kid growing up, I was embarrassed to be a Jew. I was humiliated by it, because when I would see video footage of the Jews, they were always being killed or beaten or persecuted. And who wants to be associated with that? I wanted to be part of a strong people, not a weak people. So I actually uh, was embarrassed to be a Jew and I would try uh, to avoid even anyone thinking that I am. But then when I got saved, suddenly I had this unexplainable hunger for anything Israel that I never had before. So, I mean, it was just a tremendous turnaround. And I went to school, as I told you guys, at Penn State, which is considered to be the second cloudiest place in America after Seattle. It's uh, nestled in the Appalachian Hills, and I'm one of these people that needs to sit by one of these sunlights to be happy. Uh, too much clouds, and I get depressed. So I had this desire to go overseas, and in those days I was studying international relations at Penn State. And I had a choice to go to either Italy or Egypt or Israel. Now, all three of these places, you know, are sunny. They're not lacking for sun. They're like Southern California. And I've never heard a bad thing about Italy. Speak to any tourist who's been there. Every single person will tell you they love it. So I thought maybe Italy. And I said, definitely not Egypt. Because I knew in those days, even as a secular Jew before I got saved, that the Arab world does not love us. And then I said, I think I'll go to Israel because there I'll get plenty of sun. And I'll also learn perhaps a little bit more about myself and my roots. So I traveled to Israel for a semester of study. Now, as soon as I got off the airplane, I fell in love with the country, but for all the wrong reasons. Because, you see, I was yet a very carnal Christian. The first reason why I fell in love with Israel is because I thought the girls in Israel were the most beautiful girls I'd ever seen. And number two was I saw those same girls carrying Uzis and M16s along with guys who were younger than me. And here I told you that I was embarrassed of this whole persona as the weak Jew and I see Jews younger than me with machine guns fighting back. And that appealed to my uh, need to feel like strength, you know, the, to wipe away the shame that I had. And number three was that my campus was only two or three blocks from the Mediterranean Sea. And as you know, uh, the Mediterranean Sea is a fun place to be. 
So after class, we would play football on the beach and uh, have a good time. So for, I fell in love with Israel for all the wrong reasons, for carnal reasons. But during those six months that I was studying there, God tried to show me two things. One, that he wanted a deeper relationship with me for me to abandon carnality and to become more spiritual. And two, that he brought me to Israel for more than girls, guns, and football on the beach. And by the time at the end of that six months, I, uh, it was time to go home to America, and I was extremely uh, depressed for some reason. I couldn't understand why I'm depressed to go home. I have great family, and my mom is going to make my favorite uh, spaghetti and, and uh, apple pie and have everything uh, ready for me when I come home. But something inside me grieved to, to go back to America. And I went to Ben-Gurion Airport, and I got into my El Al jet, and as I looked out at the airline, I experienced something that we'll call in Christian terminology an impression. I felt a very strong impression. Now, I believe, and I hope I can say this without any of you thinking I'm weird, that God can speak to you. You're weird, Steve. <laughs> Thanks. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. And as I was looking out of the window of this airplane sort of depressed to go home and not understanding why, I was dis- impressed very strongly with this uh, statement, I will bring you back to Israel and you'll see the same palm trees on this runway again. I'll bring you back by, same, by, by the same runway again. So I was like, is that God? Because that thought did not come from my own conscious. I wouldn't think that and I wouldn't want to think that. So here, God had put a seed into my my uh, heart that one day he'd bring me back to Israel. It doesn't mean to live there. It could be to just study another semester, play football, or hold a gun. I don't know. So, so what happened was I went back to the United States, finished my major in international relations, and my uh, I graduated from school, and my dad promised me when I went to college that I would have a great future, that it was worth going to college, and my dad uh, signed me up for seminars on how to dress for interview. He signed me up for a seminar on how to write a resume and other uh, one to how to uh, interview and all this uh, stuff. And I couldn't get a job. I couldn't find a career. So I ended up working in a shopping mall uh, at a men's clothing store. The guy from Philadelphia, you probably know Franklin Mills Mall. So that's where I started to work. And... It was exceedingly boring because all I did uh, was fold shirts and talk about sleeve length with people as if that's interesting. And uh, I'm there for eight months, bored to death, passing the time, until one day a gentleman comes in the store to speak about sleeve length. And behind him is an Army-Navy store with all the flags of the world hanging from the rafters. Now you know that sometimes when you're talking to somebody and you're not interested, you sort of look beyond the person and pretend by going like this that you're really listening. But it's really in one ear and out the other. So he's talking about sleeve length, but I'm looking beyond him, and I see the flag of Israel hanging from the rafter. And I remember this impression I had on the plane. And I asked myself, Steve, did you, your father, you consult, I consulted my dad in the flesh about what I should do with my life. He's given me all sorts of advice, but did I ever consult God about what his plan is for my life? And the truth was, is that I was running away from God's plan for my life. God forbid he asked me to leave my country, my language, my culture, my family, my food, and everything that we call home. So I was running away from God's plan for my life. 
And I didn't repent or do anything about it. I continued to live my life for another couple months until one day I was sitting at home reading the Bible in my room on this nice beanbag chair that my mom had bought me. And I got another impression, just like this impression that I told you about uh, at the runway at Ben-Gurion Airport. And that impression said that if you don't go back to Israel now, you'll miss my entire plan for your life. Well, imagine that, missing the very reason why you were born. Did you know the Bible says every single one of us, God has a plan for it. Every one of us, he has a plan for it. He has a blueprint, a master print. So I thought nothing could be more tragic than missing out on this. So I woke up the next morning at 6 in the morning, took the mass transit SEPTA to Center City, Philadelphia, to the Israeli consulate, and I said, I want to move to Israel. And the guy looked at me and said, he thought I was crazy. He said, well, why do you want to do that? Well, I didn't tell him that God told me to, because he would think I'm weird. <laughs> Maybe you don't, but he would. So I just told him, well, I had studied in Israel before, and I just fell in love with the country, and I want to move there. So he said, can you prove that you're Jewish? And I was able to prove that through different documents. And he said, welcome to Israel. In that moment, within five minutes, I was a citizen of Israel. And they paid my airfare to immigrate to Israel. And uh, I moved to Israel. Said goodbye to my family, language, country, culture, diet. I can't begin to explain to you what that's like, to pick up and just tear out from your roots and move to a new place. And I started life in Israel on a kibbutz. And I know, uh, I'm not sure you know, Skip has lived on a kibbutz in Israel, a farm, a collective farm. I went to Israel with only $1,000 in my pocket, which is not a lot of money. It runs out quick. But at every key juncture of my life in Israel, God told me where to live. Eventually, he told me where to serve in the army, which I did for a couple of years. Eventually, he told me to go to tour guide school. Eventually, he told me where to work as a tour guide. And until this day, I believe clearly, you know, you all know about the footsteps poem, about God's footsteps. He carried you through life. Without a doubt, he's carried me mm. until this day. Fabulous. Thank you, Steve. Excellent. Steve, since September 11, 2001, we're learning to understand what it's like to be an Israeli. Uh, we're learning about threat analysis. And um, y- you live in a country, you live in a city where you're constantly aware of terrorism. And it's nothing new to you. You, as a culture, you've learned to build bomb shelters and exist in a culture where you're always living with the possibility of terrorism. What is that like? to be constantly under fire. Wow. Well, I can say personally that I've experienced a a terror attack. When I just came out of the Israeli army, I moved to a street that, again, after 28 times you know about, called Ben Yehuda Street. That would be the main pedestrian mall of of Israel. And I got an apartment on that street, and one day I'm cooking spaghetti with a friend, and we're we're out of some ingredients. You like spaghetti, I've noticed. that You brought it up a few (laughs) times now. Just an observation. Okay. A Jewish spaghetti eater. I'm picking this up about you. Spaghetti afterwards tonight, buddy boy. And Turkish coffee. Okay, you got it. <laughs> and we were missing some ingredients, and I had gone down from, uh, I got down to the street level to buy uh, the tomato paste to thicken the sauce. And about three minutes after I stepped out onto Ground Zero, or what would become Ground Zero, Three guys blew themselves up in front of my apartment. One of their bodies flew right through the front door of the apartment. The body parts dismembered of the other two terrorists ended up on the roof of my apartment. 
And I came home to this scene from the tomato paste uh, trip. And I just missed this by three minutes. Now, I can tell you honestly that you're not planning a trip to... Am I doing a disservice to advertise your next trip to Israel? <laughs> Don't be afraid to come. We're going to do a tour why. called Israel Extreme, but it won't, won't be that extreme, I hope. <laughs> right. I'll tell you why in a few minutes, guys. You shouldn't be afraid to come on a trip to Israel. I'll do some damage control in a minute. But... When I came back to my apartment, this was the scene that I'd come to. And all of us for five years, known as the Intifada, this last Intifada, every one of us who live in Jerusalem can tell you that we've missed bombings by 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes. Within a radius of only two or three blocks from my apartment, there have been 10 terror attacks in the last four years. Now, Skip asked me, how do I cope with that? And it's easy for me to tell you that. You see, I'm born again. And if you're in the center of God's will for your life, that's the safest place on earth, even if there's bombs. Uh, I had a farmer in Ohio tell me once, you're crazy for living there in that place. And I said, you know what, buddy? I'm safer with the bombs in the center of God's will than you are in that tractor if you're not in God's will. So ye all to you. <laughs> and that's the truth. And that's why you guys should not be afraid to come on a trip to Israel. First of all, terrorism has is, is dramatically been reduced since these times I'm telling you about. But number two is, if God wants to bless you by you going on a trip to Israel, then I encourage you to be like the ten spies. Uh, no, sorry. I encourage you to be like the two spies and not like the ten. You recall the twelve spies. Ten of them saw giants. And were afraid, but two of them saw a giant God who was more giant than the giants. And they entered the promise. And therefore, should you ever have an, uh, an, exa- a, an opportunity to come to Israel, don't see the news on CNN and what they try to tell you, or what the BBC tell you, or what the ABC, NBC, CBS, and all these people tell you. Because they're, not, they're speaking the world's heart, not God's heart. They're lying to you most of the time between you and I. I can tell you there's tremendous misrepresentation on the news. If there's a terror attack in New York, do you feel it here in California physically? No. Somebody gets mugged in New York. Do you feel the knife in your back here in Ocean Hills? No. And likewise in Israel, there could be a major event happening while you're there on tour and you don't even know about it because you had to see it on the news that night when you came back from the tour day. So don't think the whole country's on fire and flames. It's like, I think I've had a hundred tours as a tour guide, and I've never had a tour group go home without telling me, Steve, I feel safer here than I do in downtown, wherever they're from. And that's the truth. He's been here, he says 28 times. I thought it was 33. No, you cut it was Chuck. He went times. 33 okay. times. Because which one of you got the honorary, uh, the, the certificate this time from the Minister Chuck of Tourism? Did. Chuck did. Well, where's he was there 33. Already? I was just sitting there in front. So you've got to go for five more? You know, I actually got one on my 25th time. Okay. So I think every so often you, you get one. I don't know how that You're works. You're due for another one. I think so. <laughs> well, I'm coming Good. back. Good. Okay, let, let's talk about... You're in the army. This thing in Gaza is happening. There's this huge pullout of settlement, Jewish settlers who have spent years of their life building a home in a place that now... They're pulling out of, they're being forced to pull out of. You're in the army, and 
We want to know, I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu resigned over this issue, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? And uh, so tell us about that, because we only hear bits and pieces of it. Well, I was privileged, Skip, shortly after you came home from Israel. I actually went to Gaza on a fact-finding mission. I went on a bulletproof bus, which is an interesting experience. You just knock on the window and you can break your knuckles. And we went to these settlements, and I was utterly amazed because Gaza was the only place in Israel I had never really been to until this fact-finding mission. And here I entered Gaza, and I'll never forget the very minute I entered, I felt like I'm in a military zone. Mm -hmm. Everywhere I went, tanks, trenches, mines, everything. But within that military zone, on totally worthless sand dunes, were 21 Jewish towns that resemble suburban America. The news would have you think here that these are caravans and tents that a bunch of psychos pitched in the middle of nowhere. No, guys, these are beautiful American suburban-like towns with basketball courts and driveways, with tennis courts, with parks with schools, with day camps, high schools, everything that you would have here in American suburbia that these guys made from nothing, from totally worthless terrain that the people living there before us did nothing with for the entire time they were there. And I met a gentleman who had lived in a settlement in Sinai Peninsula. If you look at a map of Israel on the map, on, on, on the globe, you'll see that there's a a peninsula called Sinai that joins us to Africa. And following the Six-Day War of 1967, Israel built settlements in Sinai. One of them is called Yamit, next to the Mediterranean Sea on the northern Sinai. But in 1979, under Jimmy Carter, Israel agreed to do their first land-for-peace deal called Camp David, where they gave back the entire Sinai. Well, the agreement was finally executed in 1982 and that Jewish settlement, Yamit, was totally destroyed by the Israeli army. The settlers were kicked out. And this gentleman that I met had walked with his fellow settlers over 250 miles to Jerusalem on foot to complain to the housing minister of those days, Ariel Sharon. Have you heard of him? <laughs> and he said to the housing minister, who in those days was a hawk, you know, one of Israel's most nationalistic leaders, he said, what do you expect to do for us after kicking us out of our homes and destroying our lives? And Mr. Sharon answered, well, I'm the housing minister and I'm building settlements in this area called Gaza and I promise you that if you relocate to one of my new settlements in Gaza, you'll never be uprooted again. He's being uprooted again for the second time in his life. And that was just one story of, in an, of a day of amazing stories. We met people who every day have mortars, up to 30 or 40 mortars, drop on their rooftops. Did you know that this year over 5,000 mortars dropped on people's houses and until only a couple months ago only one person was killed? It was a miracle. I mean, it would, bombs would come flying in the kitchens, living rooms, and nobody would get hurt until this one schoolgirl uh, on the way to school got blown up on, uh, by a rocket called Qasem. So we met so many amazing people, and what was interesting was, out of 1,500 families who live in Gaza two months ago when I went there, only 30 had taken the government's offer of compensation. The other 1,470 families said, we're going to fight it out that day that they come to remove us. Now, I understand that in the last two months since I've been to Gaza, many of those guys changed their mind and left uh, on their own 
accord. But uh, at the same time, today I, I heard that there was uh, some stiff resistance because many of these settlers are very faithful people. I see that you're studying the book of Nehemiah. You may recall uh, the people building the wall with one hand and holding a sword with the other hand. Those are the settlers of today's Gaza Strip, some of the only remnant believing Jews in the world. Well, what do you mean by that, remnant believing Jews? As Jews, most Jews in the world are secular and have nothing to do with God, except for these people that live in the Gaza Strip and West Bank who, because of faith only, they took a shovel and a gun and went to Gaza in obedience to the promises of God that you just heard Skip read earlier. And that's why, for me, it's so tragic that they're the ones who got kicked out when they're some of the only Jews in the world that actually believe in the good book and we're walking to obey the good book. Steve, just a, a note on that. Uh, even beyond pulling them out, the Hamas has said that uh, that their response, a lot of people are taking the credit for Israel leaving the Gaza, and Hamas has said they're not going to put their arms down. Netanyahu mentioned that he's afraid of a Islamic terror base uh, being there as a result of the pullout. What are your thoughts? Mark my words that this retreat from Gaza is not just a catastrophe for the security of the state of Israel. It's a catastrophe for the entire free world for two reasons. One is that the Gaza Strip will turn into the new Afghanistan ruled by the new Taliban, the Hamas. And that's only uh, one bad thing. The second bad thing, in my opinion, is far worse, and that is that this retreat from Gaza is a victory for global terrorism. And believe me that every single Muslim radical terrorist group in the world, whether it be uh, the man in Iraq called Zarqawi, or whether it be uh, Osama, all of these guys are saying, look, today we eat the fruits of our victory. Terrorism works. And just as we chase the Jews out of Gaza with their tail between their legs, so we will chase the Americans out of Iraq and eventually we'll chase the Americans off the face of the earth in terms of their influence in the world. So the retreat from Gaza should be something, though far away from you, 10,000 miles away from you, it's actually in the heart of the matter, and that is, I don't care what any politician says today, I prefer to be correct and not politically correct. We are in a war of civilizations, and when two parties are in conflict and only one party admits that we're in a conflict, guess who's going to lose this one? And too many people in the Western world are asleep at the wheel and refuse to admit that we're in a war to the death of civilizations. And this retreat from Gaza is a victory for Islam against the West. And now you're going to see the increasing of confidence uh, on the side of the Muslim radicals. And you're going to see terrorism multiply because this is viewed as a victory and a weakness on the side of every Westerner that we're cowards, that we don't believe in our God like they do, and they're going to chase us back into the hole that we crawled out of, and that's how they see us. Tell us how Israel is prepared. You've got enemies on every side of you. Yes. All sides of you, they don't want you to live. They don't want mm -hmm. you to exist. Some deny your existence in that land. They've been trying to get you out for years. You have lived with that militarily and prepared, obviously, I don't know what you can speak to being in the military, about what Israel is prepared to do if need be. Well, unfortunately, the easy thing for Israel to, to do would be to look up to where their help comes from. 
acknowledge the God of the covenant and then just move over and let him deal with the issue. Because within a day, the issue would be solved. A button here, a button there. Uh, but it, because we don't look up to our salvation, we depend on our army. And over the last 10 years, in my opinion, if you follow the modern day uh, Israel's history, since we signed this Trojan horse peace agreement called Oslo in 1993, there's been a uh, exponential uh, weakening of the Israeli society. And though we have one of the most powerful armies of the world, the fifth most powerful army in the world, the Israelis no longer want to fight. And therefore, they're ready to give up. Now, here's a prime minister, guys, who's probably the most brilliant general in the history of modern Israel. I mean, he single-handedly won the 73 Yom Kippur War that almost destroyed the country. And he's a brilliant tactician. And here this man, at the end of his life, in his old age, has thrown up his hands in defeat. How sad. And how are we preparing for it? <laughs> well, you know, if you read the newspapers, they'll tell you that uh, they're going to build... Today we have a fence that separates us from Gaza. But now they're going to make that fence a better fence and a thicker fence. And they're actually going to have... Uh, what they call smart machine guns, machine guns that are unmanned, not even people manning these machine guns, but they're infrared, and that they just sense a terrorist trying to infiltrate from Gaza, these uh, unmanned machine guns will kill them, but you'll see the terrorists will develop weapons to get under the fence, over the fence, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house. We go to kill her in Israel, unfortunately. And that's is, is what's going to happen. And... Uh, I think, uh, let me just tell you another thing about the Gaza Strip and its importance. When I went to Gaza, at one point I looked from within the Gaza Strip to two major cities in Israel called Ashkelon and Ashdod. One of them housed the second largest power generating plant in the country. And it was only two miles away from where I was from within Gaza. And you see those settlers distanced that power plant and the two major cities from the front lines of the terrorists. Who is between the terrorists and Israel's uh, heartland? The settlers is a buffer zone. But today we remove that buffer zone and now the line of conflict moves several miles forward towards Israel's heartland and now Israel's major cities are within reach of these missiles that before were only pouring down on settlers will one day pour down on all Israelis. Mm. One last story. You have a lot of people supporting Israel and the covenant and your right to live in the land, obviously. There was a lady years ago named Corrie Ten Boom who housed Jews when she was living in um, uh, Europe. She suffered in the concentration camp for it. And outside of Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, was a tree planted in her honor. And you have a story about that, that you tell tours and you've told us and maybe you could share with us. Well, who here, uh, just by a show of hands, has heard of Corey Ten Boom? Good. So I don't need to be Steve the tour guide and explain it, because I'm on vacation. Good. Well, when I take groups to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, I like to begin my introduction by this tree. There's an avenue at Yad Vashem called the Avenue of the Righteous, in which there are trees planted for everyone known by the Jews as the righteous among the nations. Hatzadikim ben Hagoim. Goim or Goim just simply means Gentiles, non-Jews. And for every non-Jew who saved the life of one Jew or more during World War II at the risk to his own life, 
we plant a tree to honor that person. It's an interesting tree. It's a carob tree, which in Christian uh, tradition is called St. John's Bread. So it has a Christian association with it. Now, why does Israel plant this Christian-associated tree? Because we'll be the first to tell you that the Holocaust would not be possible if it wasn't for the, the, uh, the words of Martin Luther and John Chrysostom and Justin Martyr and St. Augustine, all of whom said that the Jews were to be treated bad and that they were the enemies of Christians. Martin Luther said that the tongues of the Jews should be torn out from behind their necks and that their books should be burned and their synagogues uh, burned as well. So we do believe that Christianity played a big part. The historical church played a big part for setting up the stage of hatred for Hitler to come and just end it all with the Holocaust. But because we realized there were Christian Gentiles that went against the tide during these 2,000 years. We want to honor them with a Christian-associated tree to show them we don't blame all Christians, though we do have a problem with some church history. So we plant these carob trees, these St. John bread trees, most of whom are about the height of, uh, you know, they're tall. They're about uh, 10 feet tall in maturity, uh, 20 feet tall, except for this one little tree that I begin all my introductions at that's only about uh, 3 feet tall. You see, when Corrie Ten Boom died a couple years ago, she had had a tree at Yad Vashem that was very mature, like these other trees that were 10 to 20 feet tall. But on the day that she died, her tree died. And the caretaker of Yad Vashem woke up that day. And do you remember the, the fig tree incident in the New Testament? Instantaneous, whoop. That's what happened to her tree when she died. In one day, it just totally collapsed dead. And therefore, they had to plant a new tree, and therefore, it's the youngest and smallest tree on the avenue of the righteous. Hmm. What a story. Steve, you've got so many of them. We can't wait to go to Israel and hear more. Amen? <laughs> Thank you for being here. Now, before you leave, Steve, we know that you have a Bible that we saw when we were in Israel that was really pretty thrashed and beat up. And um, so the church, we, we know you were just out of my old digs in Albuquerque. The church in Albuquerque and us, we got together and got you a new Bible with a really cool cover that will last a long time. So we want to present that to you and thank you for being here. Shalom. <laughs> could, could I have two or more come up and close us? Steve, listen, before you leave, would you lead us in a word of prayer uh, for Israel? Sure. And maybe uh, you could say, uh, you want to do it in English? Oh, you don't want to do it in Hebrew? Sorry about that, guys. You got to think in the language of speaking, and I just haven't. So, Lord, I thank you so much to come into your house, Lord. This is your house, and this is your people, redeemed by your blood. And we are all brothers and sisters, whether we be Jew, Gentile, Mexican-American, English-American. We thank you, Lord, that in this year, 2005, with so much chaos in the world, that we're still free here in the United States of America to come to your house and worship you in truth and love you through worship and the reading of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless every single one here, Lord, that you would keep the fire burning in their hearts, that nothing in this world would compete for the first love, which is you. Because we're going to have all eternity, Lord, together. And when we're in eternity, we're going to realize that nothing in this world was so important to miss it. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would bless Skip and continue to anoint him and that his heart would be your heart, that his words that he would teach would come from your words, Lord, your very word. And we pray, Lord, that as each and every one of us go out today, that people would see Jesus Christ just living in us, that they wouldn't even need to ask us, but they would see on our very face the peace and the joy that comes by serving you. And they'd say to us or ask us, what is the source of your peace in this turmoil of a world that we live in? And Lord, we thank you that you promised by your Holy Spirit you'll give us the right words to speak and we'll answer them. And, and Lord, we just look forward to seeing more of these seats filled every week because you're still doing a great work. And Lord, I just I thank you and, and, and say, please come back soon. You tell some revelation to uh, please come back, Lord. And we look forward to your your coming and your setting up of your kingdom. And I thank you, Lord, that I have a part in it and that so many here have a part in it. And Lord, if there's somebody here tonight that just stumbled upon this service, didn't know what they're getting into, I pray, Lord, that you would just convict them in their seat right now to just, it's so easy, this salvation business, Lord. Religion has complicated it. And it's so simple. It's simply just sitting where you are and receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray if there be a person like that among us tonight, that now would be the day of their salvation, Lord, and that they would know that they know that they know when they leave tonight that they're a new creation in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Would you all stand? The easiest thing for you to do, perhaps, would be after the service just to get up and get out the door. If you don't know Christ... After this service is finished, I want you to come up and meet one of the pastors and intern pastors and prayer warriors that are going to be up front. And maybe you need to know Yeshua, Israel's Messiah, as your personal Lord and Savior. You want to ask questions or you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, we're going to be up front afterwards. Uh, we thank two or more for coming tonight. You guys are a real blessing. Thank you for coming tonight. And free Halva and Turkish.